Welcome to a special edition of the Vergecast live from the Sundance Film Festival. Um, we were just having a debate about what we were going to call this podcast. Uh, I'm I'm personally in favor of Verge Verge Pod Sun Show. Wait, what? <laughs> Verge Pod Suncast Show Special. And I wanted hot celeb chat. Okay, so let us know what you think in the comments. <laughs> uh, I uh, I am Emily Oshida. I am the editor of uh, the entertainment editor at TheVerge.com. I am joined with Brian Bishop, a senior entertainment reporter at The Verge, Hello. and Casey Newman. <laughs> Casey, New- Casey Newman. Newman. Casey, Casey Newman's own. Uh, <laughs> Buy my salad dressing. <laughs> you 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 really like bind everything together here. You're, you're I'm, the, I'm the salad dressing. You're the of zip. The group. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, as you may be able to tell, it's been a, it's been a long few days here at the Sundance Film Festival, um, in Park City, Utah, beautiful Park City, Utah. It is beautiful. Um, you guys have both, this is not your first Sundance. This is my first Sundance, but how is it, how is it stacking up as a prior? Uh, you know, I actually haven't seen as many movies this year as I did last year because there's been a lot of, you know, tech related, but not movie news. Uh, there's not uh, the line debacle that you saw last year, Casey. That seems to not be as bad this year, yeah? Yeah, there's less um, uh, trouble getting in. I, th- I think um, last year they introduced this electronic wait list that gave people a lot of problems. We're not hearing as much about that this year. Um, but, you know, I would also say that this year may feel a little weaker to me than the past two years that I've come. There really? doesn't seem like there's been a runaway hit out of the festival, the one movie that People started talking about uh, yesterday. Uh, me and Earl and the Dying Girl is apparently terrible. Um, well, I mean, th- don't take <laughs> it from me. It got a record deal out of Sundance. It got yeah. bought by Fox Searchlight for $12 million. So apparently I'm wrong. Uh, and this is the feel-good hit of the summer slash uh, early Oscar season. Uh, but it also just seems like kind of cashing in on this trend of sick lit and here's a girl with leukemia dying to give meaning to the life of her boyfriend. And yeah. I just, you know, I, I like when I think of Sundance, I think of movies like Fruitvale Station from last year, right? Sure. Movies that took us to places that we don't already go. I haven't seen a ton of that this year, but I have seen some. Yeah, I, I would agree. I've, I feel like there's a lot of this kind of stereotypical Sundance narrative that I, you know, had expected, but expe- I also expected to be disproven about. I expected to be surprised because there's just so many films here that there has to be something that will break that mold eventually. And yeah, I've seen a lot of coming coming of age dramas um, so far, partially because I signed up for them, but are also, I don't know, it just... A lot of really similar arcs. Yeah, that's um, what's here. Yeah. And while you've be, been seeing coming of age dramas, I've been seeing really straightforward documentaries that yeah. are like rock solid and yet don't really do much in terms of like playing with the form or, you know, showing us um, a, a subject from multiple different sides. Um, it, it sort of feels a little Sundance by numbers, if that's a thing. Can we say that? Are we cranky here? Because I... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should have opened a beer before we started this. I know, I know. There's still time. I've got my my goblet full of Coke Zero. So, uh, no, I mean, I... But I've been seriously thinking about that as, like, a more overall issue that I'm I'm coming up against at the festival. It's like, there is a thing of... That I, you do sense that a lot of people want to have that aha moment with a film here. I mean, I want that moment. I've been going into every movie wanting that moment. And I think a lot of people are making themselves believe that they are having that moment. And I, a friend of mine who's gone to the the festival many more times than I have um, 
was saying, you know, the, the best part is eight months from now when all these movies are in the theaters and everybody who was just freaking out about them in the festival is like, wait, what, what, what was I this, <laughs> this excited about? I mean, yeah. it, it's going to be really interesting, especially for like Meryl and the Dying Girl, which, you know, all these serious film critics are going to, are, are like, you know, losing their minds over and it's definitely going to be marketed as a, as a fault in our stars or, you know, it, it's, it's going to be marketed for teens as like a, yeah, cichlet. And I think that a lot of people are going to maybe wish that they had not <laughs> been so hyped it up so much. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is about context too. You know, like if you stand in line for something for like an hour, hour and a half, you brave the cold, you're seeing something in a room with the filmmaker for the, oftentimes the first time anybody's seen the movie and everybody's excited about just that sheer experience. You're mm-hmm. going to get amped, but it's almost like Comic-Con in that sense. Like at Comic-Con, mm-hmm. everything's fucking amazing. And no, it's not rarely. Yeah. Um, I talked to this woman at a, at a, in the bus today and she was so excited. She's seen like five things. She's like, I didn't buy tickets in advance. I just showed up. I waitlisted. I've seen everything but one movie and I love them all. Um, I wish I was having her experience. Yeah. I think that'd be a great experience to have. Um, I have not had that complete experience especially in the ease of use of just getting around it right yeah i mean i wonder because i mean it starts to really dawn on you how kind of crazy it is that we're all sitting here in these you know dark rooms often in strip malls in a small (laughs) town in utah and you know this could have all been streamed to us like we could have paid for the exact same price of airfare and everything and just sat at home in a blizzard and watched all these sundance movies um but, you know, there is that experience in the build and the struggle to get here and the struggle to get in every screening that I do, do think molds the experience to a certain degree. Yeah. Oh. And if you haven't been, I mean, let me say a few nice things about Sundance, right? <laughs> like, it, it remains a cultural treasure. I, I really believe that. Um, it's the only place I've ever been in my life where people try really hard to see a movie. It, it yeah. feels just totally, like anachronistic to the point of being quaint at this point, right? But it's also a place where you're seeing a lot of dramas that are being made for adults that are coming from outside the studio system that are not all based on Marvel comic books. And often, and always, I wind up seeing at least one thing here that I wind up sort of carrying around with me in my head for the rest of my life. And so that's magical. And um, at the same time, it is sort of a lottery. You really Mm -hmm. don't know what what you're going to see when you walk through the doors. It's part of what makes it fun, but it's part of what can make it frustrating if you don't like what you saw. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the bigger uh, films that are premiering here. Um, There is the premiere section, which is films that are not in um, competition, but are kind of the big marquee names at the festival. Um, We've gotten a chance to see a few of them between the three of us. Um, Brian, you just saw a true story this morning. Right. Um, So this is, uh, you want want to kind of summarize it a little bit? Yeah, true story is a, uh, I mean, it's a, you know, based on a real life incident. Um, Jonah Hill plays a New York Times reporter who has disgraced himself and then finds out that a man accused of murder, who was James Franco, used his name. And so he kind of like invests, starts interviewing him in jail, saying, I can turn a book into this. This is my big chance to redeem himself. And it's this this two-hander that's supposed to be a real cat-and-mouse game where they're, like, playing each other and sizing each other up and going back and forth. And there's an interesting movie there. It's a really, really polished film. It's well put together. Uh, Jonah Hill, who I consistently like in pretty much everything, is great. Um, James Franco, though, is this serial killer. And he's supposed to be, you know, a sociopath and, like, scheming and, like, figuring people out and all this stuff. And quite frankly, like in the first half, he's just not there, not selling it at all. At first, I thought he was acting as if he was act- his character was acting poorly, like to not like sell Jonah Hill well. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's subtle. That's interesting. You're like, no, that's not a choice, actually, at all. I feel all. like I've had that moment in a lot of James Franco movies where it's like, <laughs> is the thing here that he's supposed to not be good? <laughs> is, he, is he pranked right. us all? Um, 
So yeah, has that that one is already already has distribution and that's pretty uh, right. Yeah, uh, I believe so. Yeah, that's like a super high profile movie and yeah, um, and uh, yeah, it, it was frustrating though because like that's one of those movies where you see it and that felt what I it tends to happen a lot. I think it's in this the last few years. We'll have it's an indie feeling movie. It's a small movie, but big stars could be marketable, um, but um, uh, but doesn't quite you know work. And it's got the whole thing's got a fantastic cast. It's just. Mm-hmm disappointing about that one thing but the truth is like i have a hard time taking franco seriously right. in anything i think and i realized it today yeah like after the interview it's really hard for me to go and see him in any serious role and be like you're a real actor like i know you were and you have been but not today what, what was the moment where you had like the too much franco moment for all of you because i think i know what mine was and it was way later than i think it actually i would have actually imagined originally i think it was his poem about spring breakers <laughs> That was kind of the worst thing in the world. Um, it was pre-Spring Breakers. Like, because when Spring Breakers hit, I was like, I can't take it. If that oh, was he, like, was, he was good at Spring Breakers. I, 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 no, no, I had nothing against Spring Breakers. But like, that's the moment where I'm like, oh, I cannot take anymore. Like, right. <laughs> it's a good note to end on. Well, he's kind of the <laughs> like king of Sundance. I was just saying to somebody on Slack earlier today. Cool Slack side note there. Uh, <laughs> you guys been slacking a lot while we're here? <laughs> you guys, Slack has been burning up in this snowstorm. Uh, yeah, no, he, he's been, I mean, I've heard people on the bus saying like, oh man, I saw James Franco. Like, he's the person to see here. He is the the, the celebrity. He's in two movies. He's in that and I am Michael which apparently is not very good or possibly even worse than true story. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. So this is, this is the, the Franco film fest. Yeah, he's year. doing a coffee at slam dance. Like he is, he's all over main street. Oh, so he's true indie. Uh, oh, he's legit. Oh man. Yeah. I think he's just sort of like turned his whole life into performance art though. And like, that's what makes him interesting is like mm-hmm. that everything that he does now just feels like a stunt, even if it's something totally pedestrian, which mm-hmm. is like a kind of achievement. Yeah. He kind of, he's sort of the, uh, I don't know, which is the more functional version of that, him or Shia? Mm. He's good Shia. Yeah. He's definitely yeah, good Shia. Yeah. I guess. Because he's actually making movies and, and we don't work. know if it's a prank yet. You know what I mean? We're like, Shia, you're like, you're in a room with a bag in your head and asking people to come see you. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> um so uh another, another big premiere here, I guess you could call it a big premiere. Um, it was a walk in the woods. Just a little bit of an inside job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I saw this film because it stars Robert Redford and Nick Nolte. Robert Redford, of course, founder of the Sundance Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if if he is going to put his own film into the festival, I understand he's not the chief curator, but, you know, he certainly participates in the film being selected, right? It's probably going to be pretty good. It, it's really not. It's like two grumpy old guys in the wood uh, Redford, who we all know for being this sort of like shining golden boy, plays this really peevish, annoyed old writer who um, we're told needs to go rediscover his purpose by hiking the Appalachian Trail, which is not a metaphor in this case, that he really does hike the trail with Nick Nolte. And almost nothing happens to them. Like there's sort of a series of incidents and then um, a sort of lukewarm conclusion and that's the film and i I have honestly no idea why they made it i don't know why sundance selected it um it's just kind of a whole lot of nothing is it this year's land ho (laughs) (laughs) it wishes it were this year's land ho um i I find it interesting though there is like a lot of uh there's definitely a, a market for the geriatric like buddy calm yeah here at sundance and a lot of like local moms 
<laughs> so I'm sure that I mean I mean that's I, that I feel like that's the audience. I could see it working. I could see it working. <laughs> it's just one of those movies where every joke just seems to land like a half a bit too late. You know that it felt like it sort of needed an edit. It, it was just like a little bit slow. Um, like seeing two old guys like get in a series of ridiculous uh, situations. Like I could totally enjoy, but this one was just it was not that movie. I mean, is it better or worse than Gone Fishing? That's what I really need to know. <laughs> or the bucket list. Or the bucket list. Wow, I didn't realize. Or how much... Last Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> I think I smell a film fest. Yeah, right now. this should just be an old fart film fest. Um, well, uh, well, I saw a movie that I liked, you guys. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to be positive Let's for a second. Um, I saw The End of the Tour, which is um, James Ponzold, who did. Um, uh, spectacular now and smashed. He's kind of a, a, a Sundance darling at this point. Uh, but it's his adaptation of David Lipsky's book. Uh, that's basically his account of profiling or attempting to profile David Foster Wallace, uh, at the end of his book tour for infinite jest. And, uh, this one's been kind of rumored about for a while. I think like there's a lot of hand wringing about it because there's obviously something kind of weird and ghoulish about Jason Siegel dressed up in a bandana and the wearing glasses and everything. And I was really like expecting to be a little bit grossed out by this movie, but I kind of loved it. I, I really did. Um, I, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's one of these things like, kind of like Selma where you can't call it a biopic because it's about an, an isolated incident in a real life person's life. But, um, by choosing to focus on this kind of key exchange or moment, you really do get a sense of the whole character, which I, and I think it was done and written very, very well. It's essentially just one long conversation between, uh, Lipsky who's played by, Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. And, and how do they give it any sort of like narrative momentum if it's just like like two guys talking in a car? I mean, it's so so. I kind of wrote about this in my. I did a review of uh, somewhat of a review of this movie. I, I don't uh, read your work. I'm sorry. I'll have okay. to, yeah, <laughs> it's been a busy day. You know, internet internet's hard to come by here. Uh, I understand. Uh, I, I it's. Uh, so a, a lot of it, for me at least, how I read the film, is a, a lot of it is about just the nature of journalism and uh, particularly profile journalism and this relationship that the two guys form, which is supposed to be professional but cannot help but become kind of a buddy road trip type thing just because they're stuck together in a car and on a plane and all this stuff. Um the thing for me about this film, and I, I think the point at which I differ from a lot of people who also liked the film a lot, is that I really saw it as a indictment of that act. Um, I don't think that it was written with that intention, but that's the feeling that you get when you come away from it, is that this was basically like a five-day assault on David Foster Wallace mm. <laughs> or Siegel as him and uh, and David Lipsky as kind of a vampire of a personality in this which is really creepy and troubling to watch but also super fascinating and like that that is a film that i was thinking about for hours after i saw it so um and and jason sequel is really really good like he deserves credit for i mean i don't i haven't seen enough footage of david foster wallace just talking and being a person so i don't really know uh you know how literal a performance it is but uh but it feels like a real whole character. And I think that's what matters. And, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's a, it, and it goes by really quickly. I mean, like any, uh, yeah, like any long interview, <laughs> <laughs> it's really 
fun to just kind of watch a Q&A. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that one. Yeah, Jason Siegel's a guy that I, I back going back to Freaks and Geeks, like I've always liked and has been doing some stuff that's been kind of like whatever lately. So yeah. I'm really excited the prospect of him just like nailing like a serious role like that. It's interesting. We've got Franco and Jason Siegel and... The whole Freaks yeah. crew. Yeah. Yep. Here at Sundance. <clears throat> um, could I talk about something I liked? Yes. So I did see one movie that I just uh, unabashedly loved this year. It's called Tangerine. Um, it is by director Sean Baker. Um, yes. Did I get his last name right? I probably should have Googled Who's before I said. Who's our fact checker on this? This is um, me typing yes. on my keyboard right yeah. now. Quietly. But, um, but he is um, an indie director who uh, drops you into this world of, and, I, and I got the answer right. So that was Yay. great. That Confirmed. was great. Thank you. Um, so the movie is about two uh, trans women who are best friends. They're working as prostitutes in West Hollywood. And when the movie opens, uh, one of them named Cindy has just gotten out of jail and her friend lets it slip that uh, her boyfriend, a pimp named Chester, cheated on her with a biological female. And um, that enrages Cindy. And so Cindy decides she's going to hunt down the woman who cheated on her man. And so that launches this sort of hilarious farce about these two women who are very different personalities, who are just sort of like struggling to make it through a very long day in West Hollywood. And the story is great. uh, And the technical backstory is interesting as well, because they shot the whole movie on three iPhone five S's. Um, I would not have guessed that it was shot on a phone when I looked at this movie. They uh, used anamorphic lenses to make it look more like a kind of traditional 35 millimeter film. Um, uh, But apparently they shot the whole thing in an app called Filmic Pro that costs $8. Uh, They made LA look really good. Uh, And it's a really funny story. And there's a lot of heart. So uh, it was, to me, the sort of ideal Sundance movie because it took me to a place I've never been before, introduced me to some really cool, interesting characters and, uh, and told a pretty good story. Yeah. I'm really bummed. I'm not going to get to see that one. Cause that, that was high on my priority list and that, and, and just that there's something really inspiring too about, I mean, that's what this film festival should be is people using $8 apps, especially now in like 2015, people should be able to like just make a story without necessarily having all these celebrities in it or being backed by, you know, a, an indie studio. That's really a major studio. Like, there's something really cool about that kind of story coming through and and getting getting a big audience here yeah absolutely apparently the director just uh his previous film was also about uh, a sex worker and he was sort of interested in kind of continuing to explore that world and so his uh, his travels in, in West Hollywood, where he lives, by the way, took him to this LGBT center where he met uh, a couple of people who were getting services there, struck up a conversation with him, and wound up hiring uh, both of his leads uh, from the center, people who've oh, never wow. acted before, and then they collaborated on the script. So the stories that you're seeing are like real stories from West Hollywood that have sort of been, you know, turned into uh, something a little more Hollywood. Um, <laughs> but it's really fun, and we're seeing cool. Um, so there have been a couple of big, uh, buzzy docs here, also in premieres. Um, Doc Buzz. Doc Buzz. Uh, <laughs> there. Uh, so so yesterday, I believe, was the. Pr- I've, I'm losing track of days. I will I will warn you guys. It was the today's, day before yesterday. Today's Monday. We, we've yeah. been here for six days. It, That's like, not true. Yes, <laughs> we we got here Wednesday. <laughs> you lie. No. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I just got to six. Okay, today is, was, today is Monday the 26th. Yeah. You're right. I'm scared. Yeah. God, we live happening. here now, you guys. We live here now. 
No, I still feel like I, I never left the the terminal at JFK when I got stuck because my flight got canceled. Well, you may be stuck in the in the I Salt know. Lake City terminal, so we may be sorry we ever we ever did this. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, so I think it was Saturday the the premiere of uh, of Kurt Cobain mon- montage of Heck, which is a new documentary about obviously Kurt Cobain um, using a ton of uh, home video footage and I'll. Uh, like recordings from his childhood. I mean, it's like a three-hour-long documentary. Uh, final cut, I think, is two ten, two oh, fifteen, okay, something okay. like that. But yeah, it's a uh, director Brett Morgan who's made uh, the kid stays in the picture, kind of like experimental, very stylish documentaries that differ from film to film. Uh, and this one, basically, he had the support of Kurt Cobain's mom, his sister Courtney Love, and Francis Bean Cobain. They kind of just said, "Here's everything." You know, all four of them said, "Here's all the stuff we have on Kurt. Just go." Um, and it's this really, really amazing documentary because it goes back to have, you know, footage from him and he's like one and two years old, you know, at this birthday parties and he seems so happy. And then from about, you know, his parents get divorced and then from about eight years older, you just see him get more and more depressed. Um, and it's an interesting film because, uh, there've been movies about Kurt Cobain, fictional and not, there've been books about him. Um, they're all kind of like adhering to this like main narrative. Um, this movie gets into some stuff with footage that he and Courtney Love took video footage, that kind of stuff. It, quite frankly, puts him in a terrible light. It shows him at the lowest points where he's a junkie, you know, just like in a very, very bad place, both of them. It shows that, you know, there's a scene where we, I think I mentioned it in my piece where he's getting his, uh, Francis Bean's getting her haircut and he's holding her and he's nodding off because he clearly is super high. And Courtney Love like says, you don't want our, your daughter to see you like this. And he gets defensive and kind of like lashes out at her. Like you don't like him because mm-hmm. of this. Uh, at the same time, it made him incredibly human in my eyes. And having, you know, been, you know, you know, a fan of Nirvana growing up and then like seeing him die, like it kind of humanized in a way that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and I haven't seen any other movie do before. And so that sense, it was really, really powerful. And uh, I also had a chance to see the film, really liked it. And one of the ways that it differs from most of the like Cobain docs that I've seen, um, uh, aside from the fact that it doesn't accuse Courtney of murder, uh, is that it takes <laughs> uh, his journals and animates them. And, you know, there was sort of a big buzz when they, when they um, you know, released his journal so anybody could read them. And as a result, like you've seen them just a lot of places. So his handwriting looks very familiar. This film takes it and all of his doodles, right? He loved to draw and it just sort of animates all all of those things. And so the, you know, the subtitle of the film is montage of heck, which on one hand is like a horrible, horrible title. Like I, I have <laughs> right. no idea how they picked that title. Um, but, but it really is a montage and it's the best way of thinking about the movie. Like on the one hand, it does feel more comprehensive than a lot of the documentaries that are out there just because they had such great access. Yeah. But on the other hand, it is not comprehensive. Like Dave Grohl isn't in the movie. And while it does sort of tell like the entire shape of his life, um, there's a lot that gets left out. Like MTV is like barely in it. And like, I don't understand how you tell the story of Nirvana and without telling kind of the story of MTV and the role that they played, you know, but that's a quibble. Uh, It's really good. It's worth seeing. Even if you like, you don't have to love Nirvana. I think to love this movie, I think if you like Nirvana, you might love this movie. Yeah. I talked to several people who did not like Nirvana actively, but, but love the movie, Mm. um, which is kind of interesting. And the name montage of heck is, uh, was actually a, it's a, a cassette tape. I think that some of the audio is pulled from, um, so that was like, that is a Kurt Cobain title, apparently. It's still an awful movie title. So <laughs> yeah. that's no excuse. Um, but yeah, I think that comes out in, uh, in April and May on HBO. So okay. um, it's an intense movie, but worth checking out, definitely. Yeah, it's a, there's been a, I think there's at least a couple of musician documentaries here because one of the opening night films was uh, What Happened, Miss Simone, which is actually a Netflix documentary, which will, I don't think it, still don't think it has an actual date, but it's going to be soon, whenever it is. 
So that led a lot of people to not prioritize it on their schedule here because it's like, I'll be able to watch it on Netflix soon anyway. But um, yeah, it was, and I, I mean, I, I haven't seen the, the, the Cobain film, but it was also similarly very, uh, very uh, intimate in its sources. Uh, it didn't, you know, it, it didn't have people in the industry so much as it had like her closest friends, her daughter, her ex-husband, all these people. And, and that really does paint a different portrait of a person than having, you know, these authorities on music and culture and stuff tell you why this person was important and all that. And it's, it's, it's kind of a refreshing way to do a, a, a biographical documentary, I think. Um, so, uh, let's see. We talked about Tangerine. Oh, uh, oh, now on my schedule, I have in all caps, celebs. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Um, so, so Sundance is a festival where a lot of famous people, um, uh, show up and, um, and are in movies and at parties. Uh, it is a, it's, it's a celebrity hotspot. One might say, uh, and I just wanted to see if you guys had any cool stories, but celebs, <laughs> I have some amazing stories. Um, yesterday I stood behind Adam Scott from TV's parks and recreation in line for coffee, uh, for a very long time. He, um, uses an iPhone six plus and he, um, tipped all the change he got back, uh, from the coffee shop, just threw that right into the tip jar. So, I have a lot of respect for somebody who does that. Obviously, you know, he didn't have to, but I, I guess he thought the service was good. Um, and that's just one of many stories I have. What did he order? Um, just a coffee. So, um, okay. just drip I, coffee. Well, here's He's what I thought was interesting about that is that that way he didn't have to give his name, you know, cause if you order an espresso drink, all of a sudden it's like, what's your name? And I was listening in cause I was hoping he was going to say, you know, Beauregard Jenkins or something, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but instead he just got his coffee and, and walked away. Anyway, great guy. I consider him a friend. Yeah. Now. No. Yeah. You guys, one degree. We went through something together. (laughs) It's a long line. That see, that's your opportunity to like kind of elbow him a little bit and be like, "Hey, what about this line?" You know, know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) That's how that's how you get things done in this business. I'm pretty sure. I I I I almost just said, "Hey, is it cold enough for you?" Because it's kind of cold outside, but I I couldn't work up the nerve. Did you say, uh, "Hey"? Are we having fun yet? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think both of us also had Jack Black sightings. Yes. I'm so uh, jealous of this. Yeah, right, but there's yeah. a uh, there was an event where the Meat Puppets played a concert, and Jack Black, uh, along with Chris Novoselic from Nirvana, was hanging out by the side of the stage um, because that's what Jack Black does whenever there's a you know somebody performing music. Uh, and at one point, he uh, he came up to sing a song with the uh, with the uh, uh, the Meat Puppets, which was amazing. And as he walked by me on his way out, I said, uh, uh, "Nicely done," and he patted me on the shoulder. <laughs> oh, we wow. follow each other on Facebook now. It's good. Oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, does he like? Can you see all of his pics? Yeah, he's oh, crazy. Wow. He's Jack Black. Yeah, <laughs> he's Jack Black. What, I mean, what can are you I do? do? I mean, come on. <laughs> um, I, I also, I also had an encounter with Jack Black at that party, but I did not speak to him. But I did have full body contact with him for about five seconds. So, oh. um, I don't feel I need to really explain that any no. further. And um, you will not be washing that outfit anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also, I believe, had an iPhone six plus. Really? Yeah. It's um, the hottest trend among celebs at Sundance this they're year. They're really to Apple products. Everyone's doing a six plus. <laughs> the six plus. God. Yeah. Why did I buy a six, Casey? I did it wrong. <laughs> this is why we're not famous. Just walking around with our basic ass sixes. 
<laughs> I've been uh, I, I I've been trying to keep my mom uh, updated on all of my celebrity sightings because she's uh, she's really excited about the fact I'm at Sundance, maybe more than I am. <laughs> uh, and I yeah, and one, one observation she made after I had, I had told her about a couple people was like, a lot of dudes. I'm like, yeah, that's right. You know, like I haven't seen that many actresses. Like I didn't I didn't go to I didn't make it to the serious ladies panel, which was like. Lena Dunham, Minnie Kaling, Kristen Wiig, and was there somebody else? I don't know. I didn't see that. Kristen Wiig's in a lot of stuff here, and apparently she's out and about, but I haven't She's seen the her. queen of Sundance if yeah. Franco's the king, I yeah. think. Which, yeah, she's fully deserving of um, from the one thing I've seen her in so far. She think, she's in three movies? No. She's well, in Nasty Baby. She's in Diary of a Teenage Girl. I feel like there's something else. Does this mean 2016 Sundance is going to be the year of the Franco-Wig collaboration? Oh, my gosh. I don't don't know. give them any ideas or do. <laughs> I'm Facebooking Jack Black right now to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> We're so connected. Yeah, um, plugged in. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been it's been a like, kind of a bro party out there so far from what I've seen. I saw Jason Schwartzman at another party, and I saw Adam Scott at that same party for um, for the overnight, which is also supposed to be quite good. Have not seen. Probably will not get to see. There's that, that's the story with so many things here. Is uh, you kind of kind of piece together your schedule like a jigsaw and then something always gets left off it's so it's like i saw six movies in three days and i feel like i'm like barely on like the outer edge of having seen the relevant stuff yeah, yeah. well it's hard you don't feel like there's really a good sense i mean you talked yeah. in your piece earlier about how we don't there's no narrative around these films yet so mm-hmm. it's not until people start seeing stuff you know that something's good uh, but then you already have the rest of your week planned out and it's like Sunday or Monday, so what can you do? I've done so many days, though, where it's like I had a full schedule, a very comprehensive schedule, and then, like, I read one tweet, and I'm like, oh, shit, I gotta go. <laughs> gotta go change everything, like, tr- trade in all my tickets. Um, I mean, that's kind of what happened with, with uh, me, Earl, me and Earl yesterday. Um, uh, oh, uh, we also, I, I think we skipped over this. Uh, there is a uh, there is a another doc premiere, uh, Going Clear, the Scientology documentary uh, based on the book by Lawrence Wright. That was a that is a very big newsy thing here. I think they hired uh, HBO. It's produced by HBO Films. Um, it's going to be. I think it's probably going to be on sometime this summer. Uh, but they hired something like 160 lawyers uh, just to, I guess, protect them <laughs> from because you know Scientologists are notoriously litigation happy. Uh, it was, uh, I had read the book and I am also obsessed with Scientology. So a lot of stuff I'd seen before, um, I had not seen. So a lot of the film is devoted to, uh, the sort of war that the church of Scientology had in the early nineties against the IRS so that they could maintain their tax status as a, uh, exempt religious institution. And, uh, and that goes on for a few years and then they basically just, individually bully various like uh, uh uh people at the irs and eventually they are uh let off the hook for a, a billion dollar a billion dollars in back taxes and they have this big rally and david miscavige is addressing everybody in this incredibly over the top set and fireworks go off when he tells them about their tax status and this like this title goes over the screen and says we won the war and it's it's mind-blowing like and that's really like there there are all these individual horror stories about people who have been abused by the church and and all this stuff which a lot of which is in the book but i think i think that element of it um 
and you saw it too, Casey. I think yeah. we were both talking about this, like that element of that's what keeps them afloat. That's what keeps all of this abuse protected. And it's basically comes down to the IRS. And, uh, and that seems like, you know, one of the biggest takeaways from it. One of the most mind blowing things about it, I think. Yeah. And also just how like we're in this weird position in a country where the, the, the agency uh, charged with deciding like what is a religion and what is not is in no way like capable of doing it. Basically yeah. it's a bunch of accountants and lawyers and we're asking them to like argue these, you know, fine points of philosophy. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought going clear was really good. Uh, and I thought I had never seen Tom Cruise's maniacal laughter used more effectively against him. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they sort of <laughs> use it to illustrate the point that the further you get into Scientology, the more you become like L. Ron Hubbard, mm-hmm. who was a deeply paranoid person who could be very vindictive. And you sort of watch that narrative play out um, in several different people that it profiles mm-hmm. and none more effectively than Tom Cruise. You just see sort of sort of like cackling and, and looking completely unhinged. Well, have you seen that that video yeah. on YouTube, the, the big long one where he's talking about the magic of of it's the, amazing the stuff? Yeah. <laughs> he's really not even saying sentences. He's just laughing. Yeah. yeah. Do they have interviews with people that are like formerly from the church and that mm-hmm. kind of thing? And, yeah. Well, yeah. Paul, Paul Haggis is one of the main interviews, which uh, oh, really? Lawrence Wright did a profile on him um, prior to doing the book, I think. And he also figures in heavily in the book, but um, yeah, him, um, this uh, woman, uh, I think her name's Spanky Williams or something. Taylor, uh, I think. Spanky Taylor. Uh, and she was, uh, she was a friend of John Travolta's who left the church after like a pretty horrific story. She tells about um, being separated from her children in a kind of disciplinary action. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's a pretty good selection of people there, and at the end they show the people who declined interviews, which of course is like Tom Cruise, David Miscavige, uh, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's. I think if you haven't read the book, like I I feel like a similar thing happened like this with Guns, Germs, and Steel, <laughs> like, which is another book where I was like, oh man, you have to read this book, and then like they put out a movie of it or a documentary of it. It's like, well, you could just watch this too. Um, but uh, yeah, it's you know, it's 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 great. It's got it's 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 very it's very well done. It's very shiny. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, this year there has been a lot of virtual reality at Sundance, mm-hmm. uh, both Casey and Brian did a big write up on kind of the state of VR at Sundance specifically with, um, storytelling and VR, which, um, is definitely taking a big jump this year. Uh, you guys want to talk a little bit about what you saw? Um, yeah, well, like last year they had like, a, they've been doing stuff since you know, for the last three years. And this year there was a, a big new frontier, which is their kind of, you know, art installation section and they had 11 of the 14 pieces there were, were virtually uh, reality related in one form or another um casey did this amazing thing called birdly which you should just talk about because it's amazing yeah so um birdly is this full body vr experience where you strap yourself into a chair with your arms spread as if you're flying they strap uh you know an oculus onto your face they put headphones over your ears uh, a fan blows air at your face and when you open your eyes when you start the simulation you are flying over a 3d rendered simulation of san francisco and what i thought was really cool is is that just intuitively you start flapping your arms <laughs> because 
like that. What what else would you do, right? And as you flap, you gain altitude. Uh, you can sort of uh, twist your arms to to sort of fly from one side to the next, uh, and you can just sort of explore the world. Um, and there was something really uh, lovely and almost therapeutic about it, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's trying to shoot you out of the sky. Uh, you're just sort of exploring. And the the physical chair that you're sort of strapped into does a great job of sort of helping you maintain that um, suspension of disbelief and make you feel mm. a little bit like you actually are flying. So uh, I would say definitely the coolest thing I've seen at the festival uh, because it did feel like a step forward for VR. So much of the VR that we see uh, just isn't interactive. You sort of get plopped in the middle of a what is essentially a travel brochure and you look around and uh, then you get pulled out of it. This, you actually kind of got to move around a little bit and interact with things. I flew into the side of the Transamerica pyramid just to see what that would be like. <laughs> Turns out it resets the simulation, um, but was a, was a really cool thing to do. Yeah. And I'm, uh, there's a couple interesting pieces too that, uh, there's one thing called uh, project Syria, uh, that uh, a woman named Noni De La Pena from USC did. She did a piece called Hunger in Los Angeles that we covered a couple of years ago. And this thing, basically, you step, you're in a room so you can walk around, like fully, you know, walk, you know, move up and down, and it tracks. You also have an Oculus headset on. Uh, and there's three sequences in there that take place in Syria. And the first one is you're just hanging out in, you know, an uh, intersection in a town. There are people talking, uh, and rocket strikes. And it's like it, you know, blows out your eardrums. It's loud because you're wearing headphones. Um, you, you can't see anything and you see a child running towards you. And it's interesting thing. This happening with hunger in Los Angeles too, where because you can walk around freely, you just like immediately go into the world. It's kind of like what Casey's talking about, but you're walking as a person. I started running after this kid. Um, and the woman stopped me. So I didn't run into a wall, which was nice of her. Um, but it's interesting about how VR looking around is one thing, but it's when you can add those other elements, either like, you know, the wind blowing in your face or moving around that it kind of takes it to another step, even something super minor, like the, uh, the game of Thrones things they had at South by, mm. uh, in 2014, where you were like on the elevator for the white wall, they had this vibrating floor. It made you feel like you were on the elevator more than mm-hmm. just the visuals. Um, that next step stuff is always kind of what's really interesting with with VR. Uh, and the big news that we haven't seen yet, I guess we'll have seen it when this probably goes live, but Oculus announced this morning uh, they're going to be starting to make virtual reality movies of their own. They're going to be showing the first one off called Lost um, today, um, which, you know, partly wants it to be either like, you know, an incredible leap forward that, you know, breaks all boundaries and changes the world forever, be a terrible disaster is the other option that might be fun, but in all likelihood it's going to be a small iterative update, learning mm-hmm. small things, because when it comes to narrative stuff, VR is this brand new medium and nobody knows how it works. You can't mm-hmm. use cuts. Film grammar doesn't apply. It's just like you're making up this brand new thing from scratch. So all these steps are small and iterative. Um, and looking back, I think, you know, in five years, we'll be like, oh, oh, that thing that seemed so minor at the time was a huge breakthrough. But right now it's just a small little tweak where, you know, yeah. a sound makes you turn around and that changes the story point. That's that becomes a big breakthrough in this context. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to think about like what kind of stories then will get priority with that, you know, like you think about something even as kind of minor as, as 3d and how that seems to prioritize action films and things where things are going to be flying at your face and, or things where you are soaring over the 3d army or whatever. And like, what kind of story will be be Oculus will Oculus be useful to tell? Uh, and that's, that's something I'm definitely interested in seeing both with that and with the HoloLens because I can't wait for HoloLens movies and I won't shut up about it. Uh, (laughs) no (laughs) HoloLens yet at, at, uh, at Sundance, but maybe next year. Um, so we should probably wrap things up here. We'll be back on the verge cast this week, uh, barring any inclement weather, uh, to talk a little bit more about uh, the rest of the festival. But, uh, I just wanted to wrap up with your guys's, uh, maybe everybody can go around and share 
their favorite thing, maybe their favorite uh, most underrated thing, mm. and maybe the most overrated thing. Hmm. Hmm. Preferably really something we haven't talked about already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. My, one of my favorite moments, um, I've heard stories about audiences getting aggressive with filmmakers at screenings before. I saw a documentary called The Visit last night, which is a very, very odd documentary about what would happen if aliens visited the, you know, the, the earth. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's told from the perspective, like the alien, you are the alien. So people are talking to you, the character of the movie saying like, why did you come here? And then it's interspersed with that, with a bunch of like really, really slow motion shots. It almost feels like a Bill Viola, like, but like for two hours long and voiceover. Um, it's actually an interesting movie, but three, you know, like a quarter of the, three quarters of the people stayed, a quarter of them left during the screening. People behind me kept going like, oh my God, this is so pretentious. Oh my God, I can't believe you did this. Da, 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 da. So I'm like, that was annoying. But when the Q&A happened, the people behind me that had been talking the entire movie basically just started yelling at the director for like being pretentious. And part of the point of his film is that if aliens came, we would immediately go to a war stance because human beings would be paranoid. And they're like, and basically we're mad for him being condescending and talking down to humanity for that. Uh, and then they didn't get their second question answered and they left because they were really angry. Wow. Wow. I don't think I've seen a super contentious Q&A yet. Usually it's people who do the the old trick where you say you have a question and really you're just like, I've been a, such a big fan of your work forever. I saw this and this and, um, and oh, let me try to think of a question and take five minutes trying to do that. Uh, I... Yeah, I don't know. I, I also haven't stuck around for a lot of the Q&As, I will say, because usually I have to rush off to do something else. Um, I'll say that I think something that I, I think will maybe be getting more attention as the next week progresses, but still right now feels like not a lot of people are talking about is the Amina Profile. Uh, it's a documentary from a, um, a Quebecois uh, documentarian named uh, Sophie de Rasp, I think. And uh, it's... Uh, it's not one. It's it's one that's hard to talk about because you don't want to spoil it for anybody. But essentially, you can you can you can call it catfish in the Arab Spring, and uh, it goes to some it goes to some pretty bonkers places. It's not a perfect documentary. I I think it's a little. It's not a long documentary, but it could be short. It could be shorter. But um, the story is is uh, is definitely insane, and she does a really good job of of breaking it out into like a, a larger more consequential place than, Hey, like what a, what a crazy thing that happened. So, um, and I don't know, this is all very, very big, but, uh, but I, I think it's also one of those things where I, I wonder how much it's going to be seen outside of the festival. And I, so I wish that it was getting a little more attention. It sounds like it would be a great like Netflix documentary. Yeah, exactly. Know? It would be perfect for that. Or I could see it being like a vice documentary actually too. It's totally that kind of story. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, something that I, I really didn't like <laughs> other than what we've already talked about. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I, I think I'm just getting line exhaustion <laughs> just from, especially press line exhaustion. Mm -hmm. I started, I, I went off on a, a Twitter rant last night when I was stuck by some kids who were talking about the art of film criticism and right. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm, I, I worry for the future, you guys. I worry for it. Did you hashtag engage with the kids or? No, I, I kept Aww. looking over and I was like, I, I mean, I was like actually laughing. Like I wasn't doing it just to be annoyed at them. Like they were making me LOL because they were, <laughs> they were being so obnoxious. I mean, like there were some good lines like, uh, you know, film criticism, it's, it's dead. It shouldn't be, but it is dead. <laughs> Except for 
for Roger Ebert. Roger mm-hmm. Ebert was, was one of the great. <laughs> but since he's passed away, I guess it really is dead. Uh, but I think it falls to what? them to reinvent film criticism. I and know. I look forward to their contributions. I know. I should have taken down their names just so I could see who these, these young titans were. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... I, I, I'm trying not to get too hung up on stuff that I don't like here because I'm trying to walk into everything with a clean slate yeah. and feel like, you know, I could still be surprised. This could still be the best week of my life because of this one movie that I saw. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, so a movie that I think, if if not underrated, is at least uh, under-talked about so far, um, and I haven't helped because I haven't written about it yet, uh, but Larry Kramer in Love and Anger, uh, another documentary that premiered this year this one's also coming to hbo hbo is behind yeah. like so many of the documentaries in the festival this mm-hmm. year um and i've seen three of them and they're all great so i have no complaints really but um larry kramer big figure in the gay movement uh, helped bring a lot of attention to uh, the aids crisis in the early days um and uh first through the gay men's health crisis and then through act up and i think can credibly be said to have helped um uh, push the FDA to uh, uh, advance the development of drugs like AZT that wound up uh, being, you know, incredibly uh, effective in stopping the the sort of, uh, you know, slow motion, uh, you know, uh, death of just this huge chunk of the gay, gay community. So the documentary is made by a friend of his. So it's very sympathetic. Larry Kramer is a controversial figure in the gay community in part because some of his writings come across as deeply anti-sex, uh, which uh, pisses off a lot of uh, people in the gay community. Um, but the documentary itself is just a riveting piece of history. Um, it's amazing how much has happened to the gay community just between like, you know, 1979 and today. And Larry Kramer has been in the center of most of the, um, most of those issues. And, uh, and so it was cool to get kind of a look at his life and to think about, uh, you know, some of his, uh, his big arguments. Um, Yeah. And then I don't know if it's overrated exactly because it like just had its premiere yesterday and I, I haven't seen anything about it. No, but... everything is already written in stone. Yeah. These <laughs> so there's a documentary about the National Lampoon mm. called Drunk, Stoned, Stoned Brilliant, Brilliant Dead. And uh, the National Lampoon was this magazine that uh, sort of evolved out of the Harvard Lampoon. And so you had all of these sort of snooty rich kids putting out this satire of American society. It became a national magazine and for about five years was really successful. Uh, But the founders like both became disasters in their own ways and and wound up leaving the magazine. Um, What bothered me about the film was that I just didn't think it did a very good job at making a case for the cultural impact of the National Lampoon, which was sort of its one job, right? Like instead it sort of focuses on like the personal conflicts between all the people who worked there and how proud they were of the work that they did. Um, But while the name itself is kind of a household word because the brand got attached to things like Animal House and National Lampoon's Vacation, or you know the 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 Christmas movie um it's not really clear to me like how influential the magazine was mm-hmm. and i think whenever you see a documentary where there's that much like padding of oneself on the back like the least you have to do is to convince me that this thing had a huge impact they've got a couple interviews with like Judd Apatow <laughs> and uh, Billy Bob Thornton where they're like i thought this stuff was hilarious back yeah. in the day but it just didn't quite 
push it as far as I thought it needed to. It's one of those things. I think that's like a very common doc syndrome where you just assume that your audience is already on board and they don't need to be convinced of, yeah. of why anything is great. Or they just want to hear famous people tell them why it was great and back up their own opinion. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I guess I do have a piece of hate. Have you guys played? <laughs> okay. Uh, Bring it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, going, going back to the VR thing. Have you guys, do you guys play Kaiju Fury? This game is not I new. I didn't do this one, no. Okay. I think this is, um, I believe um, Addie Robertson covered this at, uh, at Comic-Con uh, last year. But um, this is a game where it's uh, on cardboard. Google Cardboard had a big presence in the, in the VR lounge. And so you watch it through there. And um, basically they say, like, oh, this is going to be this cool monster fight thing. It's like an action movie. You're going to love it. And imagine if you took the, the worst sci-fi movie possible, um, matched that with, like, two guys in rubber suits and then put it into a VR short film that basically disregarded any concept of virtual reality and decided we're just going to go make a really bad shitty student film and then put it on goggles. And that's going to be a great thing. Oh wow! And that's what this is now. Granted, I know VR is a young nascent medium. No one has had to do it right. But one thing I will say is that, um, if you're going to insist on using cuts in a movie, you should probably realize that people have to go and turn their head and, you know, left and right to look at different things in VR. So if you're going to have your really, really bad actress trying to play with some sort of like laser bolt generator thruster device to kill the monsters to extreme left, you probably shouldn't have the monsters to the far right when you cut to that scene. Otherwise, you just whip your head back and forth for Will about three minutes style. until you vomit. Um, <laughs> so don't play that. Okay. <laughs> That's all. Stay well, away from this student this, art exhibition that can be found only in Park City, Utah. For the no, next that one few you days. can download. That one you can download. I believe it's oh, downloadable. Really? Yeah, oh, if you have man. Google Cardboard, you can do it yourself. So, um, take a Dramamine and try. Okay. Oh, wait, that you just changed your recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that that about does it uh, for us this week. Like I said, we'll be on the Verge Cast this week talking more about Sundance. Um, Enjoy the rest of your week if you are at Sundance. Um, if you are stuck in a blizzard somewhere in the East Coast, um, uh, get some booze. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Later. Bye.